So far on All for Earth, we've talked about the intersections of environmental issues like adapting to climate change, ensuring sustainable agriculture, preserving biodiversity, and providing clean water to all. So these four huge environmental problems, climate, water, food, and biodiversity, are all happening simultaneously. We've heard from experts in policy, science, and communication. We get pretty good information, pretty good data from researchers who tell us scientists are not being well portrayed on television. Here's why. We've heard about challenges, but also about optimism for the future. I have to be optimistic. This is definitely in reach. We know what we have to do. That's that's the good thing about it. My name is Catherine Rehimaki, and my guest today is the perfect person to help bring all of these ideas together. Carter Roberts is the president and CEO of the World Wildlife Fund, which, despite its name, does much more than just working with wildlife. Carter, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I want to start with an outline of what WWF actually does, because it is much more than just biodiversity. So can you talk a little bit about the scope of WWF's work? Uh, Sure. We were founded uh, 60 years ago in response to the realization that the world was on the verge of losing some of the most important places on Earth that was home to both creatures that we loved, but also lots of communities that um, lived there. And we were born to draw the world's attention to these places and then to mobilize the world to act before it's too late and to save them. So from the beginning, we, uh, although we have a uh, black and white panda is our logo. <laughs> we uh, we were all about places like the Serengeti, the Amazon, uh, the Mekong River, the Himalayas, and more. And um, and over time, our work has evolved from raising money to buy equipment and to create parks, to engaging in the way that infrastructure is designed, and and uh, engaging in the behavior of the private sector and its footprint, not just carbon emissions, but also uh, habitat alteration. And, um, and then finally, engaging on uh, the world's financial systems and the way that nature is factored into the biggest decisions that companies make. So you had mentioned um, being interested in saving communities. Is that um, wildlife communities, ecosystems, or does that include kind of the human communities? And, um, you know, I'm leading to a question about, you know, who who is at the table when you have the discussions about the Serengeti or other places like that? It, it, it includes all of the above. Yeah. It is wildlife communities. It's... Uh, uh, the rich complexity of ecosystems. It is the human communities that live there. And finally, it is also all the different players from around the world who in, end up touching those places and who use those places for better or for worse. And so when you talk about who's sitting around the table, that is an essential and important question because what we've learned is that if the only people around the table are government officials, and yeah. we know that government officials change, we know that political regimes change, and your work is not likely going to last. And so um, our best work, who's sitting around the table, are scientists, members of the local community who have great knowledge and experience about that place, but whose lives depend on that place, government officials whose uh, regulatory 
um, constructs either will help those communities and help scientists do the right thing. And then last but not least, also different um, commercial economic players um, who can either send signals that help sustain that place or destroy it. And so um, our best work uh, includes listening to the voices of all those players. But at the end of the day, doing what helps that place sustain itself over the long run and sustain the communities that live there. Are, are there particular characteristics that you look for in the people who will be successful partners with you, um, either people who are working for WWF or as collaborators outside of the World Wildlife Fund? Well, you know, when I, when I give uh, talks at universities, often students ask, how should I best begin my <laughs> career? And, yeah. and the first thing, I, I reassure them based on my own experience, there's no, there's no set model. You can make all kinds of choices in your life. But at least in, in our work, the most essential qualities of the people that we hire make the greatest difference is that they have the ability to connect the dots between sectors. They have the ability to bring together not only the scientific academic community, but also government officials, also the private sector, and also local communities. And so um, to be able to connect the dots and build bridges is a fundamental quality. To play well in the sandbox with others, <laughs> uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't work well when um, people want to be in, um, uh, solely in charge of an outcome. Uh, uh, the best work is often uh, collaborative, uh, created with and through others, and um, and so you have broad ownership of the solution over the long run, and and that it spans lots of different functions. Does that mean that sometimes success looks like someone else getting credit and just being content with kind of the ecosystem or whatever, you know, being preserved or whatever policy enacted um, occurring, even if it's happening um, with others taking the lead in that? Success almost always looks like others getting more credit than we do. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I uh, now that sounds like a, um, a somewhat trite, predictable thing to say. And there are times when there's tension in um, how much credit uh, should we seek, how much credit should others get. And, of course, when you have a big brand like we do, um, the, often there's an instinct that we need to make sure the panda right. is uh, front and foremost because um, with that uh, acknowledgement comes a flow of money, a flow of press, a flow of um, uh, kudos from our board members and others. But... The truth of the matter is that our best work, you have to squint hard to see the panda, and mostly what you see are the logos and the voices of other institutions that are either much more local mm -hmm. or play a much bigger role in the context of that nation. Right, right. Um, you know, I'm wondering for the um, environmental community generally, as we think about who's at the table, are there um, groups that you think, not necessarily WWF specifically, but um, environmentalists more generally, um, that we should be concerned about people who are generally not at the table? Um, are there groups that are neglected and should be um, brought into conversations more? 
Well, you asked that question at a time when every institution is asking that question. Yeah. And it's clear and obvious that we have work to do in making sure that the voices of people of color, indigenous communities, and, um, and voices across genders are heard in a much more balanced way than they have been to date. And I think the environmental community is, um, has work to do in, in getting better on that count. It's interesting, at WWF, we have 7,000 people around the world, 7,000 staff working in, in different places. We have, believe it or not, 28 offices in Indonesia. It's a big, long archipelago of islands. <laughs> we have learned that as we operate as an institution, it can't just be the voices of those who have money and influence in Europe and the United States. You have to have um, an equal seat at the table for people from other countries to look at common issues like climate change or resource use and allocation. But at the same time, in our local work, whether it's in Alaska, the Northern Great Plains, the heart of the Congo, or wherever, we have to be good and disciplined at making sure that the voices of those who do not have power are at the table, particularly when it's their place and in their community that is most deeply affected by whatever actions are taken. And that means having a, a seat at the table when a project is designed, having a seat at the table when the project is being evaluated, and also having moments in time where there is facilitated engagement with governments and other institutions whether it's on healthcare or conservation or whatever, to make adjustments when uh, the balance isn't right. Right. And it also seems like WWF does a tremendous amount of work sort of reaching out beyond the table to influence um, kind of consumers and, uh, you know, think about it as like winning the hearts and minds of the average person. Um, is that something that... Uh, you feel as part of the WWF brand? I mean, you mentioned the Panda logo. Um, I feel like I've seen that on uh, lots of project pro products at the grocery store, um, you know, and, and I think my child has a couple of your stuffed animals. So um, sort of how, how do you work with understanding what your sphere of influence is? Is it the people who are making the policies? Is it the people who are ultimately spending their dollars on dolphin safe tuna or, or what have you? In the environmental community, I think you know well, there's an inside game and an outside game. The yeah. inside game is you, um, um, you hire a lot of smart people who have great technical skill and you engage um, corporations or Congress or the administration in um, either regulatory policy fixes or the change in the way that products are sourced and produced. But from the beginning, all the way back to uh, how we were born, we've been all about mobilizing and galvanizing the public too. And, and so that's reflected in a heavy emphasis on membership. We have by some count, six million members around the world throughout Europe and Pakistan and China and the United States and more. Mm -hmm. We have eight million activists in the United States who don't necessarily give us money, but they act on key issues um, uh, working with us. And, um, and, and I would say that over the long run, it is incumbent upon us to engage the public in the decisions that the public makes 
either um, what kind of energy to use, transportation, and most particularly what kind of food we eat or waste. And um, and we are looking for ways to use not just our brand, but partnerships with others like the school system, like food providers, and um, and scaling up the consciousness of people about the consequences of the choices they make. We are, I would say, about 10% of the way toward where we need to be. But we often talk about the importance of putting the movement back in the environmental movement. of where you need to be with outreach to consumers, to changing people, the sort of everyday person? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a brilliant team here who have a background in social media and communications and the rest. They've won many, many, many awards. And I'm you have some of the, of the most beautiful videos on YouTube. Yeah, and such, yeah. there's that. We won, <laughs> Apple's, hot, we won <laughs> Apple's highest award for design on a yeah. for an app that we've created. But yeah. I would say that if you look at countries and awareness and how they, that translates toward uh, the pressure that companies feel or that politicians feel, the environment is looms larger in Europe than it does in the United States. Yeah. And particularly in the US, I would say we have work to do to make people aware of the extraordinary degree to which we depend on the planet and and the the solutions we have at our disposal right now and the absolute urgency that we need to act now and not just in the decisions we make in our own lives but in the decisions that we help the institutions where we work or that we influence in the decisions they make too you know that's a nice transition i think to one of the big issues that weigh on um, policymakers minds and maybe in the public mind that um, you know some some of this costs money um, you know do you view these issues as being economic cost benefit issues or is it more of an ethical issue that these are beautiful places that deserve to exist and that we ethically should not be destroying them? And I know that you know this is not necessarily one or the other, but in the WWF work, um, does one take more priority than the other? Look, I, I am in this business starting 30 years ago because of the uh, – more from the ethical, personal impulse that we cannot let other species go extinct on this planet. And these places are so profoundly important to us. How could we destroy them? That's where I start from. And I think a lot of staff at WWF are motivated in the same way. What we have learned is that when you were talking to policymakers and you were talking to those who don't have the same impulse, capturing the profound dependence humanity has on ecosystems and the planet for food, for air, for source of water, and for all the rest matters a lot. And and then putting an economic value on those ecosystem services matters a lot. I, I always think of it as the poetry and the prose of our work is that we talk about the beauty of it all, the ethical, the moral, Uh, fundamentals of conservation and environmental protection. But we also talk about the economic reality and the fact that our economy and our way of life is at risk. And I think uh, 
when you look at the disruptions that climate change is now causing with storms, catastrophes, disruptions, inability to plant food, and the, and, and the disruption to economies that occurs when you've got a combination of food scarcity and governance failure, like in East Africa and the Middle East. Then people start to migrate, they start to move, governments collapse, and then you see insecurity and instability in the world, and it puts everything we care about at risk. So you have to tell both stories. Yeah, and it emphasizes your need to have so many different people at the table who, I mean, it's, it sounds like liberal arts personified that, you know, you need to be able to capture the um, poetry of it, as you said, as well as the economics, as well as the science that leads to understanding what the economic impacts might be. You said it. I was with my 87-year-old father who was uh, – a professor of medicine who was lecturing to my kids uh, over the weekend about the importance of a liberal education, the importance of learning the humanities and science, and the importance <laughs> of connecting the dots. And it's true. These are really complex issues and complex ecosystems and complex politics. And we have to find our way through it. And that requires being able to see all the different angles and then being able to stitch together a narrative that resonates with the American public and with policymakers and the private sector and more. Right. So sticking with the private sector, um, is there sort of optimism from your end and from their end that we can preserve ecosystems, we can combat climate change, and that we can do it in a, an affordable way, in a way that works with uh, companies' business models and with their, um, w with their particular products or their, where they see themselves going? I think optimism is uh, too simple, maybe even too strong a word. Uh -huh. I would say that I think those institutions who see most clearly what's at stake are the military, Mm -hmm. The Department of Defense is probably the wisest about the importance of nature, believe it or not, within the federal government because of the stories I just told. The private sector also sees quite clearly because even though they are responsive to quarterly reports and Wall Street and investment models that max um, take into account a five-year cycle of return, the best businesses have 20, 30, 40, 50 year models yeah. and um, scenarios and think deeply about this. So I think they see very much what's at risk and the imperative to do something about it. And I also think they see very much the opportunity to create new markets, new products that solve the problem and, um, and see progress um, over those things that they can and I'm talking about the best companies, not every company <laughs> that they can sure. control. But I think there's a certain moment, and I was in New York at the, um, at the UN General Assembly when m hundreds and hundreds of companies signed the New York Forest Declaration that declared they would keep the forests of the world intact and remove deforestation from their supply chains. There is a moment when you will sit next to one of those executives and they will point to somebody across the room, a government official, and a key government uh, where they source product, and they will say, 
we cannot get there without her. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so there is, at the end of the day, there's all the good, important work on creating solutions and driving markets. But you would be naive to think that markets alone are going to solve the problem. Uh, you need governments, you need government regulations to create stability in markets, send the right signals, such as putting the right price on carbon, that the best companies desperately want because they know it will enable them to scale up in a way that they need to. And, you know, just a year ago, with four other NGOs, we created something, and the biggest buyers of renewable energy in the country, we created something called the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance that Google chairs. It involves Facebook and Microsoft and many, many, many other companies. Mm -hmm. And it is now its own NGO. And we put all of our, some of our best staff (laughs) left to join this institution. And it is a trade association that works at policy, policy barriers and removing them and new policies at a state level and ultimately at a federal level, that those companies need to scale up renewable energy. And they can't get there unless the government plays its role as well. So that that's a great um, sort of lead into where I kind of want to finish our conversation, which is thinking about this political climate um, today. And uh, you said optimism is not the right word. So um, how do you view the uh, prospects of making progress on political um, ends, whether it's the U.S. or whether it is a global context? Um, you know, what what is the future um, look like in, in that realm? <laughs> look, I, I, uh, I think some people are born pessimistic and some are born optimistic. <laughs> I, I, I like the word optimism, but, you know, I don't think optimism is just some sunny disposition you have that everything's going to be fine. Yeah. What I describe with, I think, those institutions and also, and I would say this is true of WWF, is our role is to be clear about the science of it all, which, by the way, is quite scary yeah. when you look at resource scarcity and climate change and their ability to break the back of our planet and our ability to um, sustain ourselves. But there is a deep and abiding conviction within WWF, and I think our best partners, that we have it within our power, if we can only influence those institutions that matter most, that we can drive the world toward a better outcome and an outcome that is a sustainable one. And that includes the federal government. We live in a moment in time when the environment and climate change have a great purchase at a local level with cities and states and communities and corporations but has become a source of political conflict at a federal level, Mm -hmm. which is uh, stunning when you think about over the history of the environmental movement. If you were going to add up the great environmental presidents, it's 50-50, Republican and Democrat. And yet, as a combination of um, money and from special interest groups, and our political system, which uh, favors extremes at times, we are in a bad place. And we need to get out of the, 
that bad place. And um, we will not get to lasting legislation and a price on carbon unless it's a bipartisan effort. Mm -hmm. And so we have been working closely with uh, key Republicans and Democrats and we are driving toward a narrative to, to put a price on carbon that's at the right moment and to create the openings to do that. I think it will require more transparency around donations to campaigns. I think over the long run, some tweaks to the way elections are run might be helpful. <laughs> but I, I think, at least for WWF, we see quite clearly that the U.S. Congress plays an outsized role, not just in setting and putting in place the right regulatory framework here in the U.S., but also the ripple effects that that creates around the world. A lot of people said when we pulled out of Paris, many, many other countries would follow. Just yeah. the opposite has happened. Uh, the only other countries that hadn't quite signed on have now signed on, including uh, North Korea and Nicaragua. <laughs> and so... Um, American leadership matters a lot. Um, it matters at a state level, a city level, and also at a federal level. And I think it's one of the most important tasks we have is to get to the right climate legislation at a federal level. That will require us, it will require the private sector playing a much more active role. And it will require uh, people making this an issue in both parties and being clear and consistent that that's what uh, they deserve, and that's what their kids deserve, because it's that fundamental to the future uh, for us all. And, and so are we close to that happening? Or, I mean, some of this is, as you said, kind of in the works. Um, is there enough of a critical mass of people on both sides of the political aisle, as well as bringing in the private sector, that... Um, even if it's not front and center in the news, that progress is actually happening? Well, one thing I've learned is never to try to time the stock market and never try <laughs> to uh, time uh, when legislation is going to pop out. But I do, uh, I do see signs when you see key Republican legislators sponsoring legislation to, uh, on renewable energy and on specific energy breakthroughs. I see more and more conversations happening with the private sector calling for uh, action. And we're seeing uh, climate change become much, much more of a conversation across parties, maybe not in the public, but quietly. I don't know when that moment will be. It cannot come soon enough because every year that passes is a year that's going to cost us more in solving the problem. But we, we have some election cycles coming up that no one can predict what will happen. What we need to do is to make sure that all of society makes this a fundamental issue for politicians of both parties to address. And it seems like, uh, you know, one of the strengths of WWF has been to maybe change the framing of conversations um, in creative ways throughout your history. So, um, you know, if it's the Our Planet series, or if it's, uh, you know, labels on certain products at the grocery store, um, or conversations with government uh, officials that you guys are trying to maybe change the nature of what, what's being discussed. You know, there are all kinds of great 
uh, NGOs out there, some of whom are niche players who do really cool stuff in one realm or another around one solution or another. We tend to encompass all of the different <laughs> strategies, and I think that gives us a responsibility to really connect the dots between those strategies, between consciousness raising to partnerships with the private sector to mobilizing uh, the public and and I would say most particularly the voice of young people, uh, teenagers, um, students, um, both in high school and college and in graduate school. We are seeing that as a phenomenon around the world, not just Greta from Sweden, <laughs> but but it is a phenomenon around the world in every continent. And, and so we do feel like we have a responsibility to connect the dots and to provide a platform but ultimately to be quite clear about what are the handful of outcomes the world most needs on climate change, on energy, on food production, and on uh, trade and sustainability writ large, and to help the world accomplish what it is already committed to in the Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals and in other agreements where the goals are clear, um, they're quite ambitious, it's our job to knit together society and to motivate people and institutions to go faster. And um, and so, but but our real stock and trade or partnerships with other institutions, you, it's not all about the panda. Um, <laughs> our best work is when the panda is not quite so obvious. And you know, having spent four years at Princeton, I had a liberal arts education. I and my roommates, I think, um, learned that connecting the dots is super important. I think this has been a fascinating conversation to hear how you guys are connecting those dots and um, helping other people do the same. Um, so, Carter, thank you so much for joining me today um, for this really wide-ranging conversation. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Carter Roberts is the president and CEO of the World Wildlife Fund. He is also the host of Panda Pod, a new podcast from WWF. You can follow him on Twitter at, at Carter underscore Roberts and read more about WWF at worldwildlife.org. All for Earth is a production of the Princeton Environmental Institute and the Princeton University Office of Communications in collaboration with Princeton's Council on Science and Technology and assistance from the Office of Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. Our executive producer is Margaret Koval, and our audio engineer and editor is Daniel Kearns. The opinions expressed here represent the views of the individuals involved and not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on all major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and the Google Podcast apps.